Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, of course, we've all got a grotto under our home. But what did London's leading architect of his day keep in his? And what's the origin of the distinctive shape of the British telephone box? It's Friday, April the 19th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London? Okay, you know where you are. Radical transformation. Very radical transformation. morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, didn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. The hell is that? (laughs) The man is tired of London. He's tired of London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, immersing yourself in the sight, sound, And for the Jewish community, who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland... We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, for a pleasant change, we've got some nice carpet to stand on. Uh, always good. I'm here in Sir John Soane's Museum, which is already delighting me. Lots of uh, dark wood and books, which is uh, a good thing in any building. I'm here with Dr. Frances Sand. She is the catalogue editor at Sir John Soane's Museum. Hi. Hello. Welcome to the Soane Museum. Thank you. What a beautiful place. really does feel like a home as well as a museum, of course. Well, absolutely. It, it is a house museum, simply because it was the home of Sir John Soane, the leading architect of his generation, as well as being his museum, which he used uh, to teach his students, his architectural students at the Royal Academy during the Napoleonic Wars when they couldn't travel over to Italy and observe the classical ruins from which of course they were trying to learn how to build in the classical tradition. Um, The first thing you see when you enter the Soane Museum is a rather beautiful portrait by Sir Thomas Lawrence of Sir John Soane himself. In the portrait Soane is in his 70s and shown as a very wealthy gentleman Uh, by this point in his life. He's become the leading architect of the day. He's made an awful lot of money he doesn't quite look as old as he actually is because he's wearing a rather fine horsehair wig. Um, <laughs> is that a wig? <laughs> it's an absolutely beautiful image. And it is very deliberately the first thing you see. Soane wants you to know that this is how his house, his museum, um, and you mustn't forget it as you go around. He does look like the Duke of Wellington, doesn't he? He does a little bit. Um, no, 
known for being very tall and thin, but yes, a prominent nose, certainly. Would they have been contemporaneous? Um, Just about, yes. Yes, they would have been, yeah. Um, We'll see a bust of of sewn by Francis Chantry later on in the museum, and you you get a good profile of the nose. (laughs) Before we sort of look into the museum, I know we're going to talk about his journey into architecture in particular, but can we say something about him as a person and the kind of the environment in which he he grew up and developed, and perhaps the grand tour, those kind of things? Certainly. Um, It is a little bit surprising that Sohn ended up being the leading architect of his day because he came from very humble uh, origins. He was born in 1753 in Goring-on-Thames near Reading uh, and he was the son of a bricklayer um, and his father unfortunately died when he was only 14 years old um, which meant that the family could no longer afford to pay his school fees. He had to leave school uh, with the intention of becoming a bricklayer alongside his older brother Uh, but happily for Sohn, a family friend who was a fairly mediocre contemporary architect uh, noticed that he was a very naturally gifted draftsman and he acquired for him an apprenticeship in the office of the fairly prominent Georgian architect George Dance the Younger. So the young Sohn at the only, only the age of 16 was whisked up to London uh, to, to learn how to be an architect with Dance. Fantastic opportunity for a young man who otherwise would have had little choice in life. Um, but he was actually very ambitious uh, himself. You know, While he was an apprentice he also joined the Royal Academy uh, in order to make use of their library attend their lectures uh, and most importantly of all to submit an architectural drawing to their annual competition which of course still runs today Uh, and in 1776 when Sohn was in his 20s he actually won the Royal Academy annual competition he won the gold medal uh, which means that he got to meet the king who of course in 76 everyone knows was George III everyone knows their history of course Um, and George III was so impressed with this very gifted self-made young man that he gave him a thing called the king's travelling bursary um, which sounds terribly grand but it was £60 a year uh, to travel on. Not, not nothing to be money. sniffed at. No, certainly not. Uh, he wouldn't have had the chance to go abroad otherwise, but uh, this meant that Sohn got to go on the grand tour between 1778 and 1780, uh, an educational activity usually for the offspring of wealthy people uh, to learn about foreign culture, art, antiquities, history, uh, and usually to collect art and antiquities while they were there, but of course Sohn didn't have the money for that. He was simply making drawings of the beautiful ruins that he saw. Unfortunately, he lost many of his drawings when his luggage fell off his coach as he was coming home, crossing the Alps. Um, But another souvenir he brought back was a cinder from Mount Vesuvius, which we still have in a little box upstairs, which is rather lovely. Came back, of course, and he's uh, massively in debt by that point, wasn't he? Even though it sounds as though he's been careful with his money. Yes, he was in debt to the tune of £180, which doesn't sound like much to us, but it was an awful lot. If you bear in mind that a housemaid would be earning about £10 a year in those days, £180 is a huge sum of money. But fortunately for Sohn, when he returned in 1780, uh, he set up his architectural office in London straight away and quite quickly became successful. Uh, And this was helped along by the fact that four years later, he met and fell in love with a a lovely young lady called Eliza Smith. Uh, They got married and her very wealthy uncle settled a thousand pounds on them. Uh, So he was able to relax a little bit then, uh, concentrate on his architecture. And it paid off because four years after that, in 1788, he was made architect of the Bank of England. Pretty impressive stuff for an architect in his 30s. Now that we've had the patronage of uh, His Majesty already, and uh, getting to work on the Bank of England was also an act of, uh, well, friend- friendship as well as patronage. Absolutely. Sohn had made an awful lot of useful contacts during his grand tour. Um, around 350 of his architectural projects can be traced back to someone who he'd met. 
he'd actually met various members of the Pitt family while he was on the Grand Tour and of course this was the fantastic connection that really acquired for him the job at the Bank of England. I mean let's not forget he was an extraordinarily gifted architect but had he not had friends in the right places it probably would never have come about. Which seems to suggest he must have been pretty personable. I would imagine so. I mean generally when you read his correspondence he comes across as very friendly, very respectful, hugely intelligent and gifted but I think also probably a little bit difficult too. As as most great gifted men tend to be. (laughs) What what, what makes you think that? (laughs) Well, I mean, just look at his house. (laughs) I think his wife had a lot to put up with. (laughs) Well, do you know what? Um, Having visited uh, a number of museums of very different types around London, the the one commonality seems to be long-suffering wives. (laughs) I think that's very true. Um, Eliza Soane, of course, brought the money uh, with the wealthy uncle who actually then died in 1790 and left the young couple the bulk of his his wealth. He was uh, what we would think of as a property developer here in London. Um, but I think that she sort of uh, just let Soane get on with it, really. He was sort of a, a genius uh, architect, but uh, as I say, quite a difficult man. She just went with it and did buy a few bits and pieces herself, including Hogarth's Rake's Progress, which is rather amusing. When we say he's a, a genius architect, is, is it possible to qualify that a little bit? Certainly. Why don't we move over and look at an architectural model of Soane's? Um, here in the library dining room, we have a beautiful architectural model, Soane's Soane's family monument which he designed in 1815 when his wife Eliza sadly died. Stone is generally referred to as the the father of modernism because he was very innovative. Um, If you look at this beautiful little model in the library dining room you can see that Stone loved layering. There's an inside layer which shows a fairly traditional ionic classical temple, nothing that would be out of place in ancient Greece or Rome. In fact Stone has taken this very design from an antique urn which is directly opposite the beautiful little model in the library dining room. But then if you look back at the model, you can see there's also an outside layer, a black bit, uh, which makes use of the uh, ionic order. But the beautiful scrolling capitals are shown in relief. Every single uh, architectural motif is pared down to its absolute bare minimum. He does the same with the chimney pieces in this room, which look more like they're from the 1920s or 30s. So really, Sony is 100 years ahead of his time, and for very good reason, it's called the father of modernism. I'm, I'm resisting saying that this looks a little bit like a TARDIS. <laughs> There's a very good reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, in fact, I, I know exactly where you're going with that. Um, but uh, this it reminds me a little bit of, of kind of an art deco, you know, the, the, as architecture drifted into art deco. So it really is ahead of its time That's in that respect. Absolutely, it? He is 100 years ahead of his time. But really, when you're looking at this beautiful little architectural model of the family, family monument, the main thing to look at mm-hmm. is the top of it. It makes use of a square-based shallow dome, which is soon used all over the place, including in the Bank of England, the Freemasons Hall here in the museum itself but it's also a lovely example of how inspirational Soane was and still is today because actually this particular design is the inspiration for the red telephone box which is why you said it looks like a TARDIS Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's the the sort of um, cylindrical fairly shallow cylindrical thing on the top there? It looks like it's got a kind of a a flame sculpture on top of that Uh, Well that that particular motif that you can see ornamenting that uh, is actually called stridulation, it's like fluting but curvy in the form of a Roman strigil that you'd use in your bathhouse to wash yourself with, to scrape the oil off your skin, that's where the motif comes from Uh, this particular 
particular architectural motif uh, on the funerary monument uh, design is purely ornamental but is inspired by um, antique domes which have a lantern on top there would be windows around the edges allowing light to filter into the inside of a dome because if you look up into a dome which is very large and there's no top light source it can look rather gloomy so lanterns are a very clever way of internally lighting uh, a dome area so what I'm, I suppose I'm a little confused about is uh, he, he clearly soaked up influences while he's on the tour and, and these are classical, you know, nearly 2,000 years old and yet somehow the style that emerges is um, ahead of its time. How, how did that work? Well, I don't think anyone can really say. I mean, Soane was extraordinarily gifted. He took the inspiration that was flung at him whilst on the Grand Tour, and this is what, what he came out with. You know, that, that's why he was so successful and so important, because he really did something amazing and innovative. I mean, of course, helped along by the fact that he had quite a lot of money behind him and he could afford to be creative. He could afford to take the clients that he did or didn't want uh, and do the projects, indeed, that he did or didn't want. Um, was he seen as risky or a safe pair of hands? Not as far as I know. I mean, he was he was very good at building on budget, which I don't think many architects these days are. <laughs> um, but no, very well respected generally, I believe. Um, so I would say a safe pair of hands, yeah. Well, now I've got to challenge this budget thing because I know that he was uh, commissioned to, to look at doing some churches. And um, they had, I think, £12,000 or something along those lines to to spend on each one. And I've looked at what they came in at eventually, and that was not on budget. (laughs) Well, architectural projects. You can't can't ask for the moon, can you? (laughs) So so this was a a good innings, uh, maybe compared to other architects bringing it in at £100,000 a church. Bear in mind, the vast majority of 18th century architects are building at double their budget. I mean, that's perfectly normal. I personally specialise in Robert and James Adam, and they tend to quadruple their budget. So I think Sone's doing pretty well, really. (laughs) Something's never changed, eh? There's such a wealth of stuff in this this room, and I'm particularly interested by this uh, peculiar arrangement. Um, If if you were looking just at the top two feet of the... uh, As as we meet the ceiling here, it looks as though the arches are going to turn into columns and come down and and support the roof, but the columns are truncated two feet down to allow us to to walk underneath them. These are what we call hanging pendentive arches. Sone is very dramatic in his architectural style. Um, His three principal... uh, principles of architecture were light space and invention and I think that's really shown off very well with those hanging pendentive arches particularly because you can see them from every angle because there are mirrors inserted above the bookcases on the walls behind them um so you loves to use mirror to kind of uh make exciting and and unusual architectural spaces look even more unusual. You know, it makes the room look double its size. Um, it creates clever forms of lighting. Sone was particularly good with, with clever lighting. I mean, he was the architect of the Bank of England. He produced vaults, uh, the first what we would think of as modern banking vaults, uh, which were both secure and yet top-lit by natural light. Mm. There are actually architects nowadays looking back at Sone to see if they can learn anything to make uh, modern architecture more environmentally friendly, that is, lit by natural means rather than having to use electricity hmm. and of course he, he made them uh, he made the vaults fireproof as well which was quite innovative absolutely he was he was a great one for that sort of barrel vaults etc and use of brick um, I mean of course you've got to bear in mind that uh, fire is a big issue and, and a lot of architects do become successful because they are able to uh, to do that produce architecture which is fireproof I mean look at Christopher Wren <laughs> it all starts there really um, but yes Sone, Sone is a great one for that I'm not sure however whether the, the, the Sone Museum is particularly fireproof but that's another matter 
structure altogether. Because it seems to be entirely wooden. I'm going to question. But uh, actually, that's. Um, I don't know if we will maybe come on to talk about that, but I know a lot of his uh, buildings have been lost in horrible ways, including fire. Yeah, there aren't a great many left. Sone produced over 150 country houses, um, various churches, of course, uh, lots of public commissions like Dulwich Picture Gallery, parts of the Palace of Westminster, which of course burnt down. Um, I mean, Sone is a hugely significant and famous architect, but one does wonder if it weren't for the Sone Museum whether he would be as well known now as he is today, uh, because so much of the work is lost, and indeed so much of his uh, work was never actually built in the first place. So really, with the museum, he got to uh, play around, do the things he wanted to do, irrespective of whether there was someone willing to pay him to do it or not. Now, what, what was the impetus behind this place? What was it intended to be? Was it always going to be a museum from the beginning? Ah, oh, well, uh, it's a fairly complicated story. Um, in uh, 1790, John and Eliza Sone inherited um, all of the uncle's wealth uh, from Eliza's uncle, the property developer, uh, enabling them to start buying property here in Lincoln's Inn Fields. The first house they purchased uh, was number 12. Uh, if you're looking at the museum, it's the house on the far left-hand side because, of course, the museum is composed of three houses – um, they buy that house in 1792. Uh, the thing to know about that house is that it's very small. The party wall between numbers 12 and 13 has, is diagonally slanting, so 12 gets smaller towards the back and 13 gets bigger. Uh, but they fitted a lot in. It was their family home principally because they had two sons at that date, uh, or by that date, I should say, John Jr. and George. Uh, but it was also the location of Soane's um, architectural office, so he had his students crammed in there. Uh, and it's also the location of Soane's embryonic collection, which at that that date is purely for his own inspirational purposes um, and that's absolutely fine but everything changed um, 14 years later in 1806 by which point Sone is hugely successful and famous uh, and in 1806 he was invited to become professor of architecture at the Royal Academy um, of course in 1806 the Napoleonic Wars were raging Sone's students couldn't go to Italy the way he had done to learn about architecture so in his first ever lecture at the Royal Academy he invited his students some 600 young men each year to come to his home his private family home uh, and make use uh, of his collection as a sort of grand tour in micro so he starts using the collection as a teaching aid uh, and rather unsurprisingly therefore it, it grows and grows and grows uh, with greater speed and Soane very quickly runs out of space in that small house uh, number 12 so only one year after he's made a professor at the Royal Academy Soane acquired the freehold of the larger neighbouring house number 13 um, it wasn't actually the front, the domestic part that he wanted, uh, in those days it was a 17th century townhouse what he wanted was the stables at the back because he was living at the front of 12 and he wanted to extend his own museum which was in his own stables into the neighbouring stables so he had a big double width museum at the back of his house So he bought it for the shed basically That's it, uh, I mean, you know, are we surprised really um, but just, just a word on the area quickly because yeah. within uh, 50 years or so this, this area had a reputation for being the legal centre of things Was that going on at that point? Yeah, I mean the, the legal profession has been in this particular area of London since the medieval period Lincoln's Inn Fields was originally the playing fields for the young boys learning to be lawyers in Lincoln's Inn and in the 17th century it was enclosed by buildings all around it forming what we now know of as the largest square in London um, of course the great thing about Lincoln's Inn Fields is it is full of lawyers um, so no one would ever dare build on it the lawyers would probably eat them alive um, but that was a great boon for Soane you know, he moved here, um, it wasn't the most salubrious part of London, he could have lived somewhere much more expensive if he'd wanted to but he picked Lincoln's Inn Fields for various good reasons, you know we're, we're right uh, facing on to the largest square um, 
providing Sohn with fantastic quality of light for drawing all day. Of course, he's drawing at a time when there's no benefit of artificial electrical light. Um, but also, we're right on High Holborn, where all the coaching inns were. So it's a fantastic commuter link for Sohn to get out to his patrons in the country who are building big country houses. And then there are other incidental fantastic things uh, around London in this area. Of course, we're within walking distance of the Strand, so Sohn could go to the theatre, which he loved to do. We've got lots of playbooks in the archive. Uh, we're within walking distance of the Bank of England, most of which was sadly demolished in the 1920s and of course Stone worked there for 45 years and we're also of course within walking distance of the poor old pass of Westminster which burnt down uh, which Stone both worked at and consulted uh, on quite regularly throughout his career so it was a really fantastic location for Stone to have picked and that's why really he stayed here right from 1790 through to his death in 1837. And, and that's very interesting that you've made that connection between uh, the, the draftsman's tools and, and light as well, because, of course, as you say, it, it was necessary for him to be able to see in detail what he's doing, almost with the sensitivity of an artist, presumably. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, we find, uh, we find that he's, he's very concerned with light. That seems to all tie together. That's it. He moved around the building at different times of day to get the be- best light possible. His own study, which we'll see further on in the museum, is very small. It wasn't large enough to produce the, the light required for architectural drawings. Um, and sadly, for Sohn, his eyesight started to fail him towards the end of his life. In the Lawrence portrait, he's holding a pair of spectacles because uh, his eyesight has started to fail. At the end of his life, he wasn't actually even able to read his own lectures at the Royal Academy. Uh, so his friend, uh, a painter called Henry Howard uh, read his lectures for him, um, which was rather nice. <laughs> We've got two of the houses now. D- do I take it that he he continues yes. further along the street? The story continues on. Um, Is there any stopping him? No, certainly not. Um, so uh, in 1807, Sohn had acquired number 13, leased out the front and extended his museum into the back. But of course, his collection continued to grow. Uh, so five years later, he decided he'd actually quite like to live in the bigger house in number 13 himself so he kicked his tenants over into number 12 the small house kept hold of his double width museum at the back he rebuilt number 13 in the way that you see it now this fantastic surviving building that we're standing in at the moment uh, and moved in giving him more space but of course the collection continued to grow and inevitably he ran out of space again um, and everything came to a head 12 years later in 1824 when Soane bought Hogarth's election series for large significant canvases Hogarth being an important British artist uh, beautiful canvases lampooning the British electoral process they're quite comic actually uh, and Soane spent £1,700 on them an awful lot of money uh, but by this date he had no wall space left and of course you don't buy important expensive works of art and then not hang them uh, so we went back to his, uh, his old tricks and he acquired the freehold of the neighbouring house on the other side, number 14, did the same again, rebuilt, leased out the front and extended the museum into the stables at the back. Um, we actually have a rather fantastic drawing upstairs which shows that he had it in mind to keep going and buy numbers 15 and 16 and 17 and so on. Oh, I did wonder. <laughs> but by the time he bought number 14, he was in his 70s, so I suspect he was slowing down a bit by then. I imagine the people living over there were quite grateful for his failing eyesight. <laughs> is that the museum at the back that you're, ref- yes. you're referring to? The lovely thing about the same museum is that you can walk in any any order you want. We don't do the the velvet rope thing. You can you can just wander free range. Um, and the whole the whole house is a museum. You know there are domestic spaces, but they're still filled with museum objects. We should perhaps look at some of those objects. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 16,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD. And they're yours to keep. 
For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. And we're passing through from the large front room, which, as I, as I mentioned, feels like a front room. And I noticed one of the most elegant ways of keeping people from sitting on the chairs is to put a little bristly uh, sort of pine, dried Teasel. pine cones. What are they? Teasels. Teasels. There we go. <laughs> you wouldn't sit on a teasel. No. Uh, a prickly bottom. It, you know, it, it really does the trick. We've moved into a little tiny room, uh, which is Soane's private study. It's got a beautiful little desk under the window. Not large enough for producing architectural drawings, but certainly large enough for writing correspondence. Um, Soane's very good at designing small furniture in a sort of maritime-esque way. At his feet, um, at this desk he would have or still had uh, there's a beautiful polished brass plate in the floor which is the remnants of Soane's very early uh, central heating system which worked like a Roman hypercourse system with a boiler pumping hot air around under the floor unfortunately it didn't work very well and the house was usually about 12 degrees centigrade uh, so at Soane's back in his study he has a chimney piece to keep him warm not everyone in the building would have been so lucky um, all around us in this space, we have antique casts and front and uh, uh, sorry, antique fragments and casts of antique fragments, um, all from the collection of Henry Holland, who was another Georgian architect who happened to be Soane's second teaching master after George Dance the Younger. Now, generally, when Soane bought someone else's collection, uh, as indeed he regularly did in the auction houses here in London, he would disperse it within the museum as he saw fit. Uh, but this particular collection he kept all together in one place in his private study as a memorial to his teacher so he's a bit of a sentimental old thing really <laughs> yes this really does feel like a, a private place even though you walk through it to get to other places if it, it feels uh, enclosed and uh, looking up we can see a remarkable thing it looks like it must be a cast and uh, it depicts three tiers possibly no four tiers of people going about their business in a uh, in a romany fashion uh, wearing uh, togas and it's a chap on a a throne here, oxen. What, what's going on up there? <laughs> well, I mean, this is this is the problem. I've been a curator here for three years. Our, our acting director has been here twenty-eight years. You point at an individual object, the vast majority of us will go, "I have no idea," because there are over sixty thousand objects in this museum, all, uh, all on display. Not all. Well, 60,000 objects on display. We've also got a large archive upstairs. We think, we can't prove, but we think this is the best archive domestic building in the world. We've got a collection of 10,000 antique books. We've got a collection of 40,000 architectural drawings uh, and all sorts of interesting paintings and casts and things in the curatorial offices. Um, so lots, lots to be seen. If you ever want to come and look at any of the stuff behind the scenes, all you have to do is make an appointment with our, our librarian. You can come and look at whatever you want. <laughs> well, that's remarkable. A lot of museums just don't have the uh, ability to serve that sort of uh, purpose. Well, we are the smallest national museum in the country, um, which does mean that we get a small stipend from the government, despite the cuts. Um, so that pays core staff costs. The rest we raise ourselves, so people should come along and note the donation box <laughs> and the shop. But no, we, we try our very best. You know, this is a national collection, a very significant collection, and what's the point of having these wonderful things if people can't use them? Absolutely. Well, that seems very much in the spirit that the collection was established, of course, as a, as a, a teaching and, uh, something to be absorbed rather than just admired from a distance. And um, I, I see there's the Royal coat of arms on the wall yeah, at the far end of the corridor. Royal coat of arms, rather uh, amusingly over the back entrance, which the servants would have come in through, now locked, I'm afraid. You can see it through uh, Soane's private dressing room. Uh, Soane had his own private loo, which you can't, the public can't get into. It's very terribly smart for a person in the early 19th century to have a private loo. So we'll just walk past it and have a look at the rest of the museum. 
Yes, this does have a sort of a maritime feel in places. Very narrow corridors, uh, barely enough to get your shoulders through uh, if you walk in the normal way. And we're now through to an area which almost defies description. It's almost uh, as though somebody has made a Roman temple in the back room. <laughs> we're standing underneath a mezzanine on top of which uh, Soane's architectural students would have worked. It's resting on columns which were recycled from part of the old Bank of England which Soane rebuilt. So it is a bit dark in this area. But looking to either side, on one side we have Soane's picture room, his response to the National Gallery which had opened in 1824 filled with over 100 paintings absolutely beautiful, some Canalettos, Turners, Hogarths, you name it, we've got it. And then on the right hand side of us we've got what we call the dome area uh, filled with all sorts of casts and fragments um, which, well, again, this defy description, but we've got a, uh, an early 18th century cast of the Apollo Belvedere. We've got the Francis Chantry bust of Soane himself. Uh, we've got some beautiful composite antique urns from the collection of Robert and James Adam. All sorts of things. You sort of have to come to see to believe it, really. You mentioned that uh, the Adams are part of your area of interest. Do you have any uh, influence in new items coming here, or is it a matter of curating what already exists? Ah, well, this is a static collection. Um, the museum was a established in 1833 by Soane when he was 80 years old with a private act of parliament uh, with two stipulations. One was that entry should always be free, which of course it still is, uh, and two, uh, that the museum should be kept as much as possible as it was when Soane died, which he did indeed do in 1837. So we don't uh, buy things unless they had once been in the collection and unfortunately been lost or sold or stolen occasionally. Um, and uh, far from it, we don't move things around. If we ever do, it's to put things back to how Soane had them and undo the work of well-meaning 19th century curators. What problems have you inherited from how Soane did things? All manner of problems. There is so much stuff in this building you can hardly move. <laughs> so, you, so you're limited on the number because I noticed there was a small queue outside. Yeah. Presumably, you have to keep a you know one in one out type policy going. Yeah, on. I mean the old health and safety issue. You can only have a certain number of people in here at any given time. There is only so much space. We're about to start the second phase of our opening up the same project, during which we're going to, for the first time, open to the public Soane's private apartments on the second floor of the museum. So, if you come back in 2015 or towards the end of 2015, you'll be able to see so his bedroom his book room his oratory his bathroom that sort of thing uh, and of course that will reduce greater space in the museum so just quite literally a larger number of people will fit at any given time <laughs> i got the impression that his private life and his work life are pretty thoroughly mixed together what's uh, the differences between the uh, sort of lavish surroundings here and his private apartments um, very little. Um, <laughs> that, well, we'll go up and see the drawing rooms uh, shortly. Uh, the domestic spaces have slightly fewer objects uh, from within the collection uh, in them, but they're still very much museum spaces. You know, this is a man, as you say, whose whose private life, his working life, and his collecting life are all intertwined in one very small space. So, you know, there's, it's, it's sort of a grey area. <laughs> I'm, I'm always interested where somebody is working in the in the space of uh, a, a great name like so do you, do you feel you've got a personal relationship with the man um, I feel that anyone who works in or visits the Soane Museum is sort of like a puppet at the end of Soane's strings. You know, we're all doing exactly what he wants. We're engaging with his architecture, his collection. We're engaging with his private act of parliament. Uh, you know, everything we do in this building uh, goes back to what Soane wanted and what he envisaged. And that's absolutely fine because he was an extraordinary man. But you do sort of sometimes think, you know, how much, how many lives have been affected by this incredible collection. Hmm. One life that was certainly affected 
was that of George Stone. Now, if I've understood it correctly, uh, John and George Stone turned out to be a little bit of a disappointment to uh, Sir John Stone. Uh, I, I think he had another child as well who passed away quite early on, but then two sons who were a bit of a letdown. Yeah, the Stones sadly had five children and only two of them made it uh, past infancy. Oh, oh goodness. Uh, yeah. Um, John, unfortunately, uh, died in his early 30s from consumption. Uh, he had shown some interest in following in his father's footsteps and becoming an architect, but of course he was unwell throughout his entire life and never really managed to achieve anything. George, the younger son, who actually did make it to old age, um, showed no interest in architecture at all, which was upsetting for Soane because he was keen that his son should establish an architectural dynasty, uh, a Soane dynasty, as it were. Um, George was actually quite a gifted playwright, but he never made a great deal of money from it um, and therefore relied heavily on his father's income. He actually misbehaved quite badly. You know, He actually got his sister-in-law pregnant at one point, which, of course, his father didn't approve of. And this all culminated in 1815 when George ended up in debtor's prison. Um, he applied to his father to bail him out, and, and Sir John Soane said, you know, look, you're a middle-aged man, you've got children of your own, I'm sick of it, sort yourself out. Um, George didn't like this. You get the impression he was quite spoiled. And when a few months later he finally got out of debtor's prison, he got his own back by writing two articles for a publication called The Champion, in which he very heavily criticised his father and his collection and his architectural output. Very embarrassing, considering how famous Soane was by this point. And Soane felt very betrayed, um, but worse still was Eliza's reaction. You know, she read her son's words and she was just heartbroken. Um, And the story goes that she took to her bed and she died two months later. So Soane really felt that George had killed his wife. Um, and he took the two articles and he framed them and at the bottom of the frame was a little plaque which read Death Blows um, and the Death Blows were the only thing that George inherited uh, when Stone died so George was dis- disinherited uh, freeing up the museum uh, to be left to the nation which is possibly a good thing because it means it survives <laughs> So we have uh, his swinishness to thank Yes, quite possibly <laughs> Well let's keep, uh, let's keep pedalling Sh- Which way next? Downstairs. downstairs okay we're passing by the the regal relief there lots of penises on display uh, I, I should emphasize that they are attached to statues uh, we've got a bust here of a fellow with a mustache i wish i had a mustache like that and the atmosphere downstairs is uh, once again different it really does seem that every room has an entirely unique and very sophisticated character of its own. As we move into the area here, we've come through a doorway and we're surrounded by faces, uh, sort of gargoyly, churchy faces, uh, some masks of horror, a gnome over there, I think. To my left, there's a very prim-looking dining table, a little circular table. It has the top part of a skull on it and some finely upholstered chairs in uh, red uh, velvet-like material surrounded by uh, very expensive looking vases which I shall be juggling later <laughs> and above me well this is very peculiar because the, uh, the the ceiling above the table is uh, probably seven or eight feet uh, up but the ceiling above where I'm standing right now is, it must be 20 or 30 feet high and there's a barrel vault across the top letting in sunlight a statue looking down on us and uh, portraits and, uh, and, and landscapes up there as well. What a crowded place. We are now at the back of number 14, the third house which Soane bought, and we're actually downstairs in what was the wine cellar beneath the stables. Um, in what had been the stables behind 14, Soane produced his picture room, uh, where he put over 100, and, 100 well, he put 118 paintings. He, he 
crams them all in by the use of planes, which is terribly clever. But beneath the picture room, in what had been the wine cellar, Sohn produced a suite of spaces for a fictional monk called Padre Giovanni. Giovanni for John, it's terribly funny. Um, and these three spaces are composed of uh, the monk's cell, where Padre Giovanni would sleep. That contains a real human skeleton, which had once been the life model for uh, John Flaxman, the sculptor, who was very good friends with Sohn during his lifetime. So if you look through the windows, you come down the stairs, you'll see the skeleton. Um, I suspect Sohn kept the closet in which it lives shut most of the time, because it is a bit shocking. Uh, the space in which we're standing at present is the monk's parlour, so it's the space for the fictional monk to live. Um, it's essentially a space for taking afternoon tea, um, but you've got to bear in mind that at the beginning of the 19th century, the Gothic and eclectic styles were coming into fashion. And with this space, Sohn was basically saying, you know, look, I'm not just a one-trick pony, I can do more than just the classical, which I've been doing for decades. Um, and here he's sort of saying, you know, I can do the Gothic too. He was very interested in ecclesiastical architecture, wasn't religious himself, but he was on the church board and worked on various churches. Uh, and in this space, as you said, the ceiling is very high in one area and low in another. We've got a sort of nave and chancel arrangement. Um, and we're, we're surrounded by casts and fragments, this time principally of medieval origin, so appropriate for the narrative of the fictional monk. And then we've also got some beautiful Flemish stained glass in the window. And if you look through that, you'll look into a space uh, called the monk's yard uh, that contains recycled ruins from part of the Palace of Westminster, which Sohn rebuilt. He was a great one for recycling. And within the narrative of the monk, the uh, recycled ruins are sort of faux monastic ruins uh, for Padre Giovanni to look after. Up until the moment we arrived here, I was thinking that this uh, this own fellow seemed reasonably well balanced and very passionate about his architecture. But this is a bit nuts, isn't it? This is a bit crazy. Um, you've got to bear in mind this is 1824, nine years after Eliza Sohn has died. At this date, Sohn is referring to himself as being like a hermit alone in his cell. So I think he might be a bit depressive. But equally, you know, a great genius. He is trying very hard to be shocking in this area. You know, he's inviting his friends, people like Coleridge and Turner, people who are accustomed to upstairs downstairs culture to come down into low dark service areas essentially hmm. to see priceless works of art and antiquity he's trying to be very shocking and, and what just on a practical level it looks to me as though he's uh, i mean either this was an outside area previously or has he knocked up through two maybe three floors of the building he's knocked up through two floors of the building um quite simply you can see uh, the back of some of the planes of the picture room the room literally opens uh, you have two rooms which open to together um he's a great one for top lighting by having clever shafts to allow light to filter down into lower floors uh in this particular space he's using a barrel vault uh in glass in this particular example he uses yellow glass there's a lot of yellow glass in the museum and so uses that because most of the collection is of mediterranean origins and of course in the mediterranean it's sunny and in london it's cloudy uh and yellow glass gives you that kind of sunny mediterranean feel yes it, it would be an altogether different feeling if the uh if the glass up there were of the normal sort. Slightly colder, I think. Absolutely. I mean, it would be as grey and cloudy as it is on every, any given day in London, whereas the yellow glass, you know, makes it sunny and light. And I think you need a little bit of levity injected when you're in a low-ceilinged hermit's cell. <laughs> Moving out of the, uh, the the monk's area, you move into what's known called his crypt, uh, what had been the wine cellar beneath the stables of number 13. It's called the crypt because it's full of objects associated with death, and it's supposed to be a bit creepy. Was the, was the corpse not enough? <laughs> no, certainly okay. not. <laughs> 
deliberately dark. It's, it's lit with grills from above. You have to watch your feet because there are a few steps, but it is very fun. I just noticed the, uh, the crossbow. <laughs> There's a crossbow. <laughs> I presume that's if the visitors get out of hand. Yeah, just <laughs> get through in just a sec. Very busy today. Mm. <laughs> well, it's good and busy here today. Lots of people moving through. Um, we're passing through some Chinese. Uh, there could be dogs, there could be dragons. Very large sculptures there. And through some low ceilinged areas it's it's absolutely true what you said about the uh, the cleverness um, in the way that he uses light I know the same thing is true of the Dulwich Picture House as well with um, a, a big dome much like the one that's above us at the moment letting in their beautiful sunlight yeah we're, we're currently in the centre of the crypt beneath Soane's dome uh, so it allows light to filter down into the crypt lighting his fantastic sarcophagus beneath I mean as I said the, the crypt is full of objects associated with death but at the centre is the sarcophagus which you just can't get away from it's so incredible and large it's um, the sarcophagus of Pharaoh Seti I, so one of the most important Egyptian pharaohs. That dates it to about three and a half thousand years old, and it comes from the Valley of the Kings. It was discovered by a famous uh, Georgian, or well, 18th century Egyptologist, an Italian circus strongman turned adventurer called Giovanni Battista Belzoni, uh, who discovered it in Thebes, got legal permission to remove it, so there's no, no dodgy stealing going on. Um, he brought it to London and offered it to the British Museum for £2,000, but they refused it, saying it was too expensive. They can, they can steal their own. <laughs> well, more for them, really, because it's just the most fantastic object and one of the most important Egyptian antiquities outside of Egypt. But, of course, Sona had the perfect spot for it, and he had loads of money. So he bought it. He was hailed a hero for saving it for the nation. Had to knock down the back wall of the museum to get it in. Um, so it's never been moved since. And during the Second World War, when the majority of the collection was evacuated to mines uh, in Wales for safekeeping, this was just covered in sandbags, and the curators hoped for the best. Um, obviously, the museum didn't receive a direct hit during the Blitz, but... Uh, uh, it would have been awful, but uh, but no, everything is okay. The sarcophagus is um, absolutely beautiful. It's made of a single piece of alabaster, which glows orange if you shine a torch through it or your mobile phone through it. Um, it's covered in hieroglyphs, which tell the story of the Book of Gates, which was the uh, Egyptian religious text talking about the soul's journey from this life to the next. There's actually a relief of the Egyptian goddess Nut inside it. She was the goddess who'd lead you to the afterlife. And unfortunately, Stone didn't know any of this because, you know, the Rosetta Stone had been discovered during his lifetime, but it hadn't been deciphered yet, so he didn't know what the hieroglyphs meant, which is a bit of a shame. And what does it tell us about the journey into the next life? <laughs> I'm not an Egyptologist. Oh, you don't know either. Tell oh, you. Well, you're, you're a step ahead of Sone, but there's still, <laughs> there's still more on the journey. Um, incredible, actually, because you can see where where we were a few moments ago. Uh, we've got the bust of Sone, and uh, we've got... Now, who, who's our fellow here uh, gesturing this with a fig leaf uh, covering his... Uh, his various parts, <clears throat> yes. Um, this is a cast of the Apollo Belvedere, one of uh, the most important antique sculptures anywhere in the world. The original, of course, is in the Vatican Museum. Uh, but this... This cast was made in the early 18th century for the famous architect Earl Lord Burlington. Um, and I, I rather like to think that Stone bought it not only because it was the Apollo Belvedere, but also because it, you know, it had belonged to this great inspirational architect who'd come before Stone himself. Hmm. 
And this was the last phase of the museum? Or? No, we're at the back of number 13 now. So this is, um, we're at the back, uh, the museum, which Sony extended into when he bought number 13 in 1807. Um, so we're sort of middle, middle of the time scale at this point. Of course, various bits and pieces are bought at different times. Mm. He continued to move things around right up till 20 days before he died. Oh, so it's all mixed together then. Oh, we, yes. uh, right, OK. Yes. And what about the, the character of the things that he was collecting later on in his life during this period where he's, uh, he's grieving? Well, actually, you know, yes, he was grieving and yes, he was a bit depressed, but I think he, he remained very uh, dynamic. Um, he continued to collect anything that inspired him and of any medium. You know, he doesn't just collect paintings or sculpture or antiquities or drawings or books. He collects them all. And you've got to bear in mind that he's collecting principally from art dealers and in auction houses here in London. So he is hampered a little bit by what happens to be on sale at any given time. We've got a lot of sale catalogues catalog upstairs with his handwriting in them with him sort of writing notes uh, you know putting prices on that he's willing to pay for certain things putting prices on that he did pay for certain things so you know there's a lot of archive relating to what he thought about collecting what he did collect so I, I presume then that the uh, the dealers of these sort of things must have had uh, half an eye on the fact that this collection's gradually developing. We've got one of these for you. Absolutely. I think there are a huge number of people who actually directly offered things to Sone because they knew, you know, this eccentric man who collected all sorts of things uh, for his fantastic museum. Um, from my point of view, one of the best examples is the, the architectural drawings of Robert and James Adam, which Sone bought in 1833. We've got 85% of the surviving Adam drawings. You know, hugely important architects who introduced neoclassical to the country. Um, they were sold to Sone by the uh, Adam Brothers' niece who'd inherited the drawings collection. She wasn't able to sell them because they weren't old enough to be of antiquarian interest and she'd heard about this eccentric man in London who collected architectural paraphernalia and she simply had her lawyer write to him and say, you know, would you like them? And he said, yeah, sure, have 200 quid. <laughs> Well, this is getting to be a, a habit. Every time I leave a room, I discover something disturbing on the way out. There's manacles on the way out of that area. Yeah, Sona was a member of the abolition movement. He wasn't actively involved, but he had a lot of friends. You know, he cared about it a great deal. He put the slave manacles up, you know, to make the point, you know, slavery is horrible. It's a very pointed <laughs> thing to put up on your wall. <laughs> Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud. Tweet at Londonist Sound and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. come upstairs to Sone's picture room at the back of number 14 which he purchased in 1824 because he had bought Hogarth's selection series which you can see to either side in the space. 1824 is a fairly significant year because it's the year in which the National Gallery opened, not of course in its current building which hadn't been built yet uh, but in a townhouse on Pall Mall uh, and the National Gallery was in possession of some 36, 37 paintings. Sone had over 100 uh, and this particular room is his response. We've got a beautiful uh, enormous canaletto over the chimney piece uh, which uh, uh, we removed about two years ago for the big Canaletto exhibition in the Sainsbury wing. Uh, removing it was quite a job, but it did mean we were able to rehang the space and take it back to the arrangement that Sone himself had. So you've got to bear that in mind when you're in here. Um, this Canaletto is breathtaking, but I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind giving us a, a, a description of it. Uh, certainly, I'll do my best. Um, so it's a typical typical Canaletto, basically a sort of postcard uh, picture view of Venice. Uh, you're looking 
down uh, towards uh, the um, towards the Academia Bridge. You're sort of standing a little bit uh, further up from St Mark's Square. And like most Canalettos, you're a little bit above eye level. You have to sort of imagine that you're about 40 feet tall uh, to understand Canaletto's uh, uh, viewpoint. We're looking over the Grand Canal, various boats, uh, some gondolas, and also you can see uh, on the street various people uh, going about their daily lives. Um, and the nice thing about Canaletto's images is that he shows the architecture as it was. You know, he doesn't um, either beautify or make things more ugly for any reason. He simply shows it as it is. It's absolutely beautiful. Yes, it almost is photographic quality, isn't it? Yeah, well, don't get carried away because we've got two smaller canalettos above it, one showing St Mark's Square um, and one uh, showing the Rialto Bridge. Um, so they're, they're both lovely as well, but smaller, so people tend not to notice them. <laughs> I think what, what, what seems to tie that together with uh, Son's view overall, really, is this sense of uh, depth of, of perspective. You walk into the room and it feels as though you're looking far down this river. You, you must be able to see a mile there easily. Yeah, and Soane did that quite deliberately. There's a glass panel in the door to the room. So you can be at the far end of the museum looking down through the glass panel and it looks like you're looking into Venice, hmm. which of course is helped by the fact that this space is top lit, so the lighting works. Um, Soane does that deliberately. You know, top lighting is the best way to light any picture gallery, as we all know. But this particular ceiling is, is another example of Soane sort of doing innovative architectural things. It was made in a carpenter's off-site and brought here. It's in the eclectic style, so it's gothic in form with classical motifs affixed to it. And it's really, you know, despite all the incredible things in this space, it's one of the most beautiful things about the room, I think. We can see as well, if we look between the paintings, a brass latch and some brass handles there, and that looks to me uh, to be repeated on the opposite side of the room. And uh, you're going to open those up and we'll see uh, what you're talking about with the, the planes and the paintings. So basically, the sides of the, of the room, the walls open, what we call the planes, and inside are further paintings. On one side, we have um, various things, including uh, cartoons by Raphael. We've got a large Colcott showing a mythological scene. And we've got Hogarth's Rake's Progress, which, of course, tells the story um, of a dissolute young man who inherits lots of money, dumps his fiancée, gets into trouble, ends up in debtor's prison and ends up finally in Bedlam but still being looked after by his ever-faithful dumped fiancée. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a moral tale. It has comical elements but it's, it's fairly sad. Um, um, so if you're ever at the Soho Museum you come, and, come and look at it and hopefully have one of our fantastic warders run you through the story. It's really great fun. Well, we are on the uh, first floor now. If you're an American listener, we're on the second floor. We're looking down over the square. We've come through uh, rooms, apartments, they feel like, that I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a pop at Regency style. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. Um, on the first floor above uh, number 13 are Soane's two drawing rooms. One, of course, being the famous bright yellow room, Turner's patent yellow. That's Turner the colour man, not Turner the painter. Absolutely beautiful. A more sort of domestic level of the building, really, but still filled with beautiful objects from the collection, including various family portraits. But if you come through the jib door at one end of that room, you'll pass through into uh, the neighbouring house, number 12, the house which John and Eliza first bought in 1792 when they first came to Lincoln's Inn Fields. And 
And this house uh, is what has had attention lavished on it during the first uh, phase, first of two phases of our big £7 million project opening up the zone. Uh, and in that first phase, we installed a beautiful uh, conservation suite, uh, not open to the public, but on the second floor of the building. We're currently on the first floor of the building where we've got an incredible and really very useful, actually, temporary exhibition gallery filled with uh, furniture inspired by Sohn's own work um, and made uh, by Gopion in Milan. We're currently uh, showing a, an exhibition on uh, Piranesi's drawings for his, ex- his, his publication on the subject of Peastum in Italy. Beautiful drawings, uh, 16 of them, 14 of which are from Sohn's own collection. Uh, and then if you go downstairs in this, in this building, um, you will find uh, John and Eliza's breakfast room as they had it when they first moved here in 1792. And next to that, we have our beautiful uh, new museum shop, which I do hope everyone will visit. <laughs> See his nose so well. Oh, yes. Yes, he's got quite a hooter. <laughs> and uh, the, the bust of Sir John Soane, of course, is looking down onto the sarcophagus and uh, seeming to admire the collection, so he's, he's still here in a way. I wanted to ask you, there's a few rather moralistic flourishes in the collection, deliberately so. What about his, his dark side? Was there something about John Soane that wasn't wholly beneficent and benevolent and, and moralistic? I wouldn't like to think so. Um, there's nothing in the archive that relates to that sort of thing. Rather comically, the Rake's Progress, the great moral tale within the museum, was actually bought by Eliza Soane, his wife. Um, so a rather amusing thing for a wife to buy for her husband as a gift. Is she trying to tell somebody something? <laughs> I hope not. Um, no, I mean, Soane was devoted to Eliza, so it's more funny than anything else. I mean, Soane had a great opinion of himself. The, the Francis Chantry bust is placed physically above Flaxman's two sculptures of Michelangelo and Raphael. Um, but despite having, you know, an ego on him, which... I think it's fair enough because, you know, he was this great, great gifted architect. Um, I don't think that there was anything dark or sinister about him at all. He, he collected uh, in this very uh, impressive, almost extravagant way. And some objects within the collection are, you know, associated with the dark side of life. But, you know, he collected so many different things. There are huge uh, different facets to the collection, um, which don't necessarily reflect on his personality, I don't think. Now, his architectural style perhaps wasn't recognised uh, right away or the, the importance of his contribution to architecture in the, in the long term wasn't and I know that uh, one or two buildings, the Bank of England being perhaps one of them, um, much to the chagrin of, of Pevsner uh, was fiddled around with and a lot of, um, that's an architectural term by the way uh, was fiddled around with and um, a lot of Soane's stuff was, was removed or destroyed or replaced uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean as I said earlier on an awful lot has been demolished a lot wasn't built in the first place, I mean one of the great tragedies is that a large large portion of the Bank of England was demolished in the 1920s and that his work at the Palace of Westminster burnt down with the rest of it. Um, so yes, terribly sad, but I mean, I suppose that's within the context of any architect's work. Most architects, you know, a lot of their stuff is now gone. It's just the sad evolution of, uh, of, of a great city like London, really. Well, you say that, but the, uh, what I notice, a lot of the public buildings he seemed to do for departments that we no longer have, but departments with wonderful names, like the, uh, something like the Department of New Pieces of Paper or something, um, and he made all these lovely public buildings and then about 40 years later there seems to have been a, a cull of, of his public buildings in I think the, the 1860s or somewhere around there Yes, uh, I mean you've got to bear in mind that in the 1860s the country had a huge amount of money 
so they'd be looking to update at any given cost. Um, I don't think it's a, a personal slight on Soane particularly, but uh, yes, it is worth noting that a lot of his work is now gone. But having said that, his architectural drawings survive. We're cataloguing them and we're cataloguing them online with high quality digital photographs of each drawing. So um, gradually you'll be able to see more and more of them. Just go on the Soane website and click on collections. <laughs> and, and of course the Soane website is? Soane.org.uk. Uh, and I wonder, of course, people, if they haven't been tempted by now to uh, come and have a look around, um, then I'm sure a look at the website will convince them. But I wondered, in terms of his surviving architecture, what would you recommend as maybe typifying his style or, or just uh, be, being a very exciting piece of work? Well, I mean, principally the museum, I'm afraid, which sounds a little bit uh, arrogant. But, I mean, also there are, f- there are fabulous other places, such as Mogger Hanger House or Pitt's Hanger House in Ealing. is a really wonderful example. It's the house which Soane actually bought... Uh, for his own his country house that's rather comical isn't it that a country house could be in Ealing um, but it had, it had uh, been a house which he'd worked on as an apprentice with dance and then purchased it and did a lot of work on it himself and it's absolutely fantastic of course it's currently undergoing a, a large uh, conservation project very well deserved money um, went towards that um, so uh, that's very exciting so people should go and visit it and see it and really see what incredible architecture Soane was capable of when, when under his own steam mm. Mm, so that's the stop-off point on the way here. Well, uh, Francis Sass, thanks so much for showing us around today. It was a great pleasure. Please, please do everyone come and visit. <laughs> here she stands. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr. Francis Sands. Thanks too to Becca Evans and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I am N. Quentin Wolfe. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.